raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. Here we go. They go side by side in the three. Outside. Coming for the line. Coming for the flag. Hornets has got a mile off, but Barrett now punches ahead. Weldon trying to push Kanan up, Kanan trying to push Weldon down. And the guy that's going to play a role in this is probably Vitor Mira. Who will he side on to sort of help slipstream? As they come out of turn number four, it's Dan Weldon on the inside. Tony Kanan, his teammate. Vitor Mira tries to slip to the low side. Can he get it done? No! It's Tony Kanan at the line. Closest finish in IRL history was here last year. Will it be closer this year? Hornets and Herta. They hammer for turn three, come through turn three. The final corner just ahead. Dixon closes down in behind them and they're gonna go three wide at the line and it's Hornish. Hornish takes it at the line. Dixon gets second and Herta drops to third. Hey there, welcome to Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, the fan in Indianapolis and other parts around the country. Thanks for joining us tonight. Josh Molinix is in our studios in downtown Indianapolis. I'm Kevin Lee. Kurt Cavan is along. You can send something in. We're um, in, in a little bit of a different format tonight, so what you send in, we might not get to until next week, but we might a little bit later on in the program. It's at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. Uh, I am not trackside. I am dockside for the program here this evening, uh, doing a little freelance work on the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show uh, that will air coming up on FS1, I think on November 6th. It's still a little bit TBD, so maybe we'll mention that and you'll see it on social media uh, platforms coming up in just a little bit. So look forward to that, uh, taking what I know about motorsports and trying to Make it fit to boats and yachts, and this has got to be a great place to find racing sponsorship. So we'll work on that later in the in the program and later in the week as well. So coming up on the show tonight, Kurt is going to talk to Nathan Brown from the Indianapolis Star. A lot of things we can get into, and, and he found some answers to one of the questions that we were asking last week. Uh, what are the plans for the Music City Grand Prix in Nashville, building a new football stadium basically in the paddock area? So Nathan can talk about that and a lot of other things. And we got a lot of good rumors and a few things confirmed today as well. Uh, I'll recap what happened this weekend with uh, Road to Indy. That's maybe not the right way to phrase it. It's been rebranded or it doesn't necessarily have a brand right now. But the path to IndyCar, all tested at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We'll get into that. Uh, We'll have a little report for those that are super interested in how the official driver of the program, Jackson Lee, did. Uh, for the first time in what was called Indy Pro 2000, now USF Pro 2000. We'll get into that. And uh, I think uh, Lee Diffie is going to join us on the program a little later on tonight. He was at uh, Circuit of the Americas for Formula One over the weekend, so we may chat with Diff and get some thoughts on Formula One and IndyCar and much more. But since I am out and about this week, uh, we're going to turn things over studio side 
And Kurt is going to lead the way and ask him, ask us anything he'd like to discuss. Well, I guess, I guess, first of all, I would ask you, are there boats for sale? And, and B, <laughs> will they take credit cards? I mean, they are not for sale to us. So here's what's, and this is what's, I, I'm obviously not a big boat guy because I can't uh, afford a boat, but I do enjoy it. And what, what is kind of cool is that I do get to go on these luxury yachts. So, you know, it's not like the boat sport and travel show where you go in and you walk around and take a look at the campers. It's not even like the Detroit auto show where you can go up and get close to all the cars. They basically are doing a credit check of everyone at each of these boats and they are vetting you and looking and you may be worth $10 million and you're not getting on a lot of these boats. They're not letting you on unless you have the means to be able to purchase that boat. So you have to be working with a, a specific broker that has vetted you already and vouches for you. So it's uh, pretty fascinating. Now, there are other areas that the general public goes to. And the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show is a big deal. It's been 60-plus years, and it is a trademark of this area. Remember um, 10 years or so ago when IndyCar was really close to running down here to the point where I was even – I remember being told – by someone that would know that it's a done deal and it was going to run kind of in conjunction in October with this event. Well, we know that never did happen, but this is a huge staple of this community and it's a big deal. Speaking of a big deal, uh, as you know, uh, Tony Kanan's kind of a big deal at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And while we don't have confirmed reports at this point uh, or confirmed confirmation from the race team, it does appear based on two reports that we've seen in the media, that he will be the fourth driver at Aero McLaren SP, uh, joining Alex Pol- No, excuse me, we're not quite there yet. Uh, <laughs> joining uh, Pato Award, Felix Rosenquist, and Alexander Rossi. Tony Kanan in an Aero McLaren SP car, how does that ring with you? It makes sense, and it's coming from enough places that I believe it to be correct. I don't know if it's been signed. I don't have uh, any sourcing on this other than I trust the people that are reporting this. First, it was Marshall Pruitt of racer.com and Jenna Fryer of the Associated Press, uh, I think on Sunday uh, mentioned, maybe it was yesterday, said, you know, word on the street is. And, you know, from Zach Brown's comments, when he first said, we want a veteran driver and it doesn't look like it's going to work with Kyle Busch or Kyle Larson, you know, the list gets pretty short. And then we also wonder, is there room at Ganassi? Or maybe it just turned out to be a simple bidding war. Uh, and we, we know that McLaren is willing to pay drivers. And Tony Kanaan has value beyond the fact that he's won the Indy 500, is always awesome there, and finished third last year. Uh, I think Kanaan has huge value to a team. And... I saw this and you saw this last year. Yes, he drove one race, but he was visible in the paddock many, many weekends. And I think Chip Ganassi Racing got a lot of value out of him. And I think Errol McLaren would find a lot of value when he's available as well. Uh, And, you know, so what did we say last week? Now they've got uh, second, third, fourth, and fifth in last year's 500 as a part of their stable for this next year. 
Well, and you you think about Tony's career, and and I'm not saying we thought you know a few years back that it was starting to come to an end, but when he left Chip Ganassi Racing after 17, you know he got the deal with Foyt for a couple three years, and and really continued to drive well at Indianapolis, ninth in in 2019. But his value, especially at Indy, is is sky high. I mean, third last yep. year, qualified sixth. Shoot was top five qualifier and a 10th place finisher the year before. So, you know, the, the number of top 10 finishes or the number of times he's in contention to win the 500, it just has continued regardless of race team, regardless of, you know, point in his life, uh, regardless of the equipment configurations. I mean, I mean, he's been, he's been top three at Indy since since Andretti days back in 03. So he has consistently been someone you can count on. And I think he'll be a real value to, uh, to the rest of the organization. Although the way they ran last or this year, I say the last Indy 500, second, second, fourth and fifth, no second and fourth with, with Rossi coming in as the driver who finished fifth in the, in the recently completed Indy 500. I mean, this is going to be, you know, loaded with experience, loaded with talent. Uh, Pato Award has looked really good the last couple three years in the narrow McLaren SP car. So that's a good that's a good combination, no matter how you slice it. So a couple a couple other points. You know, with Canon, I know some people have taken little uh, playful jabs that wait a minute, you were retiring in 2020. You know, in fairness, he just said I'm going to retire from full time driving. He never eliminated doing one-offs for the Indy 500. But I, I do know that he was uncertain, uh, say, in May, whether he was going to be able to do the Indy 500 in 2023. And I, I, I feel pretty confident he would have found a ride. But we've discussed before how difficult they are to come by. And it really was only until after he did what he did in contention to win the race and finishing third that we all, and I think even Tony, felt, yeah, it, it'll it'll happen. It'll happen somewhere, either with this team or another team. So it took performing to guarantee that this is going to happen, and then it went even further that I suspect there was competition for his his services. And then you you look at the the team aspect; um, they're right there, and we all kind of thought that that's where Kyle Busch was going to end up. And that makes, that goes along with the platform from McLaren that, you know, we're looking to make a splash. We want a lot of attention, but this is savvy. It's okay. You can have Kyle Busch and maybe the numbers didn't work. And, you know, maybe it was about the color of the car. I have no idea, but just from a pure competition standpoint, this seems like a much better deal Yes, we love publicity and we want to be talked about, but the easiest way to be talked about is to win the biggest race in the world. And if McLaren wins the Indy 500, that is something specific that McLaren will be able to market. They've done it before, but but doing it again in this modern era, that's what they need. And adding Canaan, that's not like that's just somebody who's good. That is arguably still the most, certainly one of the top three or four most popular drivers in this event. So it it's not quite Kyle Bush, but it comes pretty close. So it kind of ticks both of those boxes. Should we rule out and I have uh thoughts on this and it's it's obviously reduced by one team now, but should we rule out 
or what what kind of expectations should we have for one of those NASCAR drivers being in next year's Indianapolis 500? Well, I feel like it's going to be difficult for both of them. I just don't see a way that Kyle Larson, well, let's look at it from this perspective, the three of them. Let's include Jimmy Johnson because he's open and interested in doing the double as well. And he's not necessarily uh, locked in with Chip Ganassi racing. Uh, I don't know where that stands at this point. I don't, I, I don't feel like that's a guarantee that that's where he's at as a one-off. So put him in the uncertain. So let's look at the three of them. I think best case is two of them, and it might be one of them. I still have to believe Jimmy is going to find a home, maybe with Ganassi in a fourth car, maybe somewhere else. A lot of it depends on what's Ed Carpenter want to do. Uh, and is he already full? Has he already done a deal with Beth Peretta to run Simona Di Silvestro in a fourth car? Uh, if not, I suspect that's what Kyle Larson is looking into, what Kyle Busch is looking into. I suspect they're both, you know, let's look at the Chevy teams. They're trying to convince Roger Penske to add an extra, to, to convince Tim Sendrick to run an extra car because Sendrick has been very clear that no, our, our best path to winning the Indy 500 is staying with these three cars that we have. We need to focus on this. It worked great for the overall season program. And we need to do this again for the Indy 500 because we have not been good enough, especially uh, picking a starting position and in qualifying. But maybe if there's no room anywhere, maybe Roger Penske convinces him to run a fourth. Then, you know, I, I, I wouldn't rule out a dryer and Ryan Bull, the other Chevy team that's involved in this. That's probably next on the list, so you might keep an eye on that there. But, no, I'm not high on the confidence level that both Kyle Larson and Kyle Busch are going to be in the 500. If I had to guess, if I had to pick, I'd say none are more likely than both of them. Yeah, I agree with you. I I think none is increasingly becoming the option uh, because unless unless it's Carpenter, I just have a – I have a – sense that i mean i just have a suspicion i guess i should say that if that if uh larson and bush i mean if if dry and reinbold is their option i think they're holding pat not because of a disrespect to the team just because from the outside they don't see those two that team as being race winning worthy and having somebody who can help them from another uh, veteran driver experience standpoint so i just I would be surprised if it went that direction. I think they both would have great respect for Ed Carpenter's team. They should. Uh, and I think they would. But as you said, it kind of depends on what, what Beth Peretta's deal with Ed's team is. So that'll be something so, really to watch. So I am looking a little bit more at Dry and Reinbold. I don't know that I would say it's likely, but I am I I'm feeling it's more of a possibility that one of them ends up there. And part of it is going to depend what's their motivation level. How badly do they want to be in the race? And let's also look at it from this perspective. Uh, Neither one are going to win the race this year, no matter what team they're with. Um, Yes, I I know they can win, but the the odds are really, really long that in their first go, also still focusing on their NASCAR program, that they're going to win. Um, Now they're, Experience could be better, and they can have a better chance of running up at the front and know that they've got a very consistent car with one of the established teams. But 
if the idea is I want to get a taste of it and then maybe come back in year two and have a chance to win, then I think you could make a case for Dreyer and Reinbold. It, it is a one-off team, but they have full-time employees. They have good cars. They have good people. And if you were to add in a Menards as a sponsor and bring in big-time budget, then you have some extra opportunities. So I don't know that I would say that's likely, um, but it comes down to them. If they want to do it, I think that either one of those drivers convinced themselves this can work. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that logic. I, I think it seems low on the on the odds list, but I, I could see that. Uh, I, I don't know if we have real clarity, but I, I get the sense there is some more clarity with Dale Coyne's team relative to, to Kumasato returning uh, for a full season deal. Do you get that sense? Where do you stand with, with Sato and, and Dale Coyne? It's more kind of educated guessing. I, I don't know anything definitively, but I'm starting to feel like it's, uh, especially as I hear other names attached to a program, and I don't know that it's going to be in a third car. So my guess at this point is we're more likely to see Takuma Sato in a part-time situation on the ovals and then a young driver bringing budget. Uh, and, and Sato is bringing some budget, but I, I'm not sure that it's what it has been in the past. And one of the names that I'm, I'm hearing that might be possible is Marcus Armstrong. And that might work out well because I don't know if he's interested in doing the ovals at this point coming from Europe. And he's an NF2 race winner. He had been mentioned with Hunkos. I'm not sure where they stand. I, I don't know that there's a clear favorite in the Hunkos camp. I think that is still wide open at this point for their second car. Uh, Marcus Armstrong has some budget. And I think that might be what we see is him sharing a car with Sato, a Dale Coin racing. And unfortunately, you know, the name we're not mentioning again is Linus Lundquist. And we both chatted with Linus last uh, Friday during the Indy Lights test. And we don't have anything really new to report attaching him anywhere. Yeah, it's um, it's it's disappointing. Uh, Linus is such a good a good guy and obviously a really good race car driver. And in what was a much stronger uh, season last year for Indy Lights, the depth was there. Andretti had, what, four cars at I think it was four cars at one races and HMD was, was strong and, and, you know, frost looked really good in the lights test, uh, over the weekend. So yeah, or excuse me, frost won a race and then also was, was looked good in the IndyCar test, uh, that he did. So, uh, you know, I want to circle back. You mentioned, uh, the Ganassi program and whether Jimmy would be back there or not. Uh, for the Indianapolis 500. We know they've got this guy, Alex Pelot, who's been back and forth. Uh, we know that they're going to run Scott Dixon again and be a, a strong championship contender. Uh, and, you know, and obviously Marcus Erickson returns as well. I don't know that I have a sense for their fourth car, either if it runs or if someone else runs it. There's been some rumors. Maybe why don't you talk about what you think you know and what motorsport has talked about relative to Nicholas Latifi? Well, as we talked last week, we were both struggling to come up with who it might be. And I had forgotten that I had seen Latifi's name, Canadian Formula One driver that is losing the Williams ride at the end of the season, but comes with huge 
backing and uh, the check can be written for him immediately. So, you know, that's kind of how people are piecing that together. And there were some reports that he was headed to Ganassi and he was asked about that at Austin over the weekend. And so he denied it, but he didn't totally deny it. What, what he denied was that he's agreed to anything, but he eventually said, yeah, I'm talking to people and it's a possibility and I'm considering some, some things. So I, I'm not sure if there's any other option. Now I'm, I'm getting, I don't know if that's headed that way though. Um, I don't have solid multiple sources on this, but, you know, I'm just starting to lean that it might be more likely that Ganassi is three cars rather than four next season, especially if they're not interested in running multiple people in that fourth entry. So uh, what I don't know, and no one is obviously going to tell us on the record, what do they think of Latifi? Um, Because if, they're not super high on him, then it's going to be, hey, we want $10 million. Uh, or it may even be, eh, we're not sure. We're not sure if he's good enough to do this, and we'd rather just do the Penske path and just focus on three cars and do it the right way. So unfortunately, I don't really know where that's headed, but I'm still struggling. If it's not Latifi, I don't know who it is in that car, and I also don't know if he's interested in doing the oval races. Yeah, it's, he said over the weekend, he said in a way it's a bit, and he used the word annoying. Then he said annoying is not the word, but obviously most of my focus is still on finishing off the rest of the year on a high note, as high a note as possible, and in this chapter with Williams on the positive side. And he said obviously a lot of other series have been finished now for quite a while, and things move fast in motorsports, and it's a time when everyone wants to get their drivers and situations sorted as soon as possible. It still is not really been that long ago that I officially found out that he'd been released. And, uh, yeah, there's some discussions, but nothing ready to announce. Uh, so always something with, with the Ganassi team. And <laughs> it was good. We've seen, uh, Alex below now have some quotes in the, in the media, had his test as, or his uh, experience in the free practice one at Austin. By all accounts, Brent ran pretty well. Um, maybe you have yeah. a chance to ask Lee Diffie about that since he was on site, but uh, it looked like it went pretty well for Alex below. And one of the things I saw in, in, uh, comments that he made there was he pretty much admitted that he left results on the table in 2022 because, you know, the contractual situation was a distraction. I mean, obviously we know that, but he, he admitted as much. He did. And he didn't want to, you know, that sort of thing to happen to him again. And what he's learned from the experience, and this would have been something that, you know, communications 101 would have told him, it's better to kind of keep quiet on some things and, <laughs> uh, and not let social media dictate your, uh, your responses, maybe uh, do a little better job of, yeah, you can control your message through social media, but maybe it's just best sometimes to keep quiet. Uh, and so he, he's, he's admitted he, uh, uh, learned a lesson out of that. And we will probably hear less from Alex Pillow regarding his future. He doesn't want to talk about it. And I thought that was interesting, uh, that Alex made kind of made those comments. Well, he's not going to be allowed to talk about it because the, the contract, uh, apparently states that he's not allowed to negotiate with anyone until September 1st. Now we, none of us believe that's true. Because obviously they've already negotiated. He's already agreed to a deal. 
And I'm sure they have to do a little bit of a different deal because it doesn't include 2023, but it still comes back to he got bad advice. He got terrible advice and he was told that, no, we can get you out of this. Stand firm. This is our strategy. Someone wrote that tweet for him and he posted, or at least someone said, let's write a tweet and this is what you're going to say. And we're going to be definitive and we're going to make it happen. And it didn't. So, yes, lesson learned. Out of all this, as as horrible as this scenario was, and everyone in the industry, from his perspective, had fears that he might have ruined his career or set himself back. You know, there was the possibility if people wanted to dig in that he might not have a drive, that he might be sitting uh, and not allowed to drive potentially in 2023. So that's worked out. He's still got a good seat. And I guess by going down this path, he has, in some ways, it has worked. He's gotten in a Formula One car to get a taste of that uh, a year earlier than he otherwise would have and already started that process. So from there, mission accomplished. And now he's saying the right things. I, I like what he's saying. I don't fault anyone in IndyCar saying, I want to drive a Formula One car. I know it annoys a lot of the IndyCar fan base, but also think of it this way. How do we think the sports car fans, when Tom Blumquist tests an IndyCar and talks about how awesome that is, that's just the nature of any racing driver. It's the same thing as when my son goes from a USF 2000 car to an Indy Pro 2000 car, or his teammate last weekend, Jack Miller, goes from an Indy Pro 2000 car to an Indy Lights car. It's awesome. The next up is awesome. Formula One cars have more power. They go from zero to 100 a little bit quicker. It's just a different car. But Palo is saying, I don't know that he means it, but he's at least saying my home is IndyCar. That's where I'm going to race. I just wanted to run a Formula One car and see what that's like. And that's the right approach. And then if someone wants to offer you a seat down the road, you know, you're not going to say no. But I think he does understand the realities that McLaren has two young drivers there's probably not going to be an opening there but at least he's gotten the chance to drive the car and he did do well uh compared to his teammate who got the soft tires which are going to be quicker he ran on the mediums all practice long and when everybody was on equal tires he was running around 12th so i I think alex Pelot showed himself well and that i I think that gives more credibility for indy car drivers so that's good The, the the motorsport community knows that the good IndyCar drivers, people that are paying attention, they know they are capable in Formula One. And to that, I find that good. Yeah, I do too. It's uh he's pretty resilient to your point. And so yeah, his um his path moving forward will be interesting to watch. Let's wrap up this segment with one more guy who has uh tested some or will be testing at different waters. That's our old friend Tony Stewart. Making his NHRA <laughs> debut this weekend in Las Vegas when he gets behind the wheel of a top alcohol dragster. How about Stu? Is is uh, is he not good for comedy and and intrigue uh, several times a year? Well, it, it's cool that you know we've always admired him because he was in the Mario Andretti and AJ Foyt realm that was willing to drive anything. Our friend John Andretti was like that as well, and they're just sometimes it's because of contractual obligations, but drivers are not allowed to do that as much anymore. And Stewart is willing to do anything. And obviously he's invested. He's married to a driver. He owns a team. And frankly, he sounds highly disillusioned with NASCAR right now and doesn't want a whole lot to do with it. So this is probably also another way for him to stick it to him right now. 
and go take the publicity that he brings to another form of motorsport. And he's not even driving the top class. He's basically driving their Indy Lights version or their Xfinity level, but it's going to get some attention this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be fun. All right, when we uh, we come back, I'll let you take over segment two after the break, and we will uh, continue the conversation here on the motorsports level. And you you up for that? Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can find a diff and talk to him about Formula One and IndyCar and more. And then we look forward to your chat with Nathan Brown coming up in uh, just a little bit from the Indianapolis Star. Stay with us. There's plenty more to come. It's Trackside on location in sunny, while it's dark now, Fort Lauderdale on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. This is Alex Palou, and you're listening to Trackside. Thank you for staying with us as Trackside continues. Uh, some of the show tonight is plausibly live. I'm Kevin Lee, and in my uh, travels this week, I happened briefly upon our friend Lee Diffie on his way back home from a visit to Formula One at Circuit of the Americas in Austin over the weekend. Our lead voice on IndyCar on NBC and so much more, including what you got. Uh, you doing women's rugby this weekend? Is that the plan? Yeah, women's rugby world cup continues from uh, from New Zealand and it's uh, the game that we'll be featuring in the quarterfinals is uh, the USA women's Eagles up against Canada so a full North American clash so as someone that has been up close to Formula One for many years you were the American voice of Formula One for what at least five or six years plus uh, part-time back on Fox and Speed Channel back in the days what do you make of what we're seeing and I'm going to guess that's the first time in a little while I think you maybe went to one event last year but you don't go to a lot of events anymore what did you make of what you saw up close and personal this past weekend it was it was pretty crazy Kev um like the the crowd size was colossal uh that was the obvious thing but just a lot of new fans uh so to speak you know and 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 drive to survive has impacted that in a positive way and um it was kind of just even in the five years since we had f1 on NBC it was very much a almost like a fresh face of the of the fan base you know so it was it was very interesting to observe very interesting to witness and just um wholeheartedly like really satisfying and gratifying that for the work that you go all the way back the day you know David Hobbs and Bob Varsher and uh, Sir Jackie Stewart and Steve Matchett and Sam Posey Derek Daly like you think about everybody who has worked very hard on Formula One in America for a variety of networks with our goal and our mantra all of those years was trying to grow the sport of F1 in America and to see that the, the crowd size and to see the level of enthusiasm for the sport because for you and me we're motor racing guys right doesn't matter if it's F1 or IndyCar or NASCAR or whatever it might be sports cars IMSA WeatherTech Series we love motor racing and to, so to see that much passion for uh, F1 in the United States was was very gratifying and there is a, a category of IndyCar fan that, you know, is a little bit annoyed. And, and I've even said, hey, I'm a little bit jealous of all the attention that they're getting. And my opinion has been that it's been the perfect storm. Uh, Drive to Survive came along uh, right before the pandemic. And then everyone had nothing to do. And they finished the Internet. And they watched uh, the broadcast because of circumstances became commercial free. That helped. But for whatever reason, Formula One is very popular right now. Um, instead of looking at it as we're annoyed, how might this help IndyCar with the popularity of motorsport in America at the moment? 
Well, I think it. I think it helps uh, definitely. I mean, we got that question on NBC Sports when we had both Formula One and IndyCar, and people said, "Oh, well, that's a dangerous mix, isn't it?" And I totally disagree. I mean, um, if people are enthusiastic, like, just take a step back. If people are enthusiastic about motorsport, that's good for the sport of auto racing, you know, and that's globally. It's not just just here in the US. So. I think it's I think it's great that people because there are not motor racing fans who are all of a sudden you know overnight F1 experts and they all have opinions on it. But that's great. I, I, again, it's positive and and you know look hopefully some of those people drift over and watch IndyCar on NBC and watch the Indianapolis 500 and watch our NASCAR coverage and watch our IMSA coverage and you know I don't think it hurts. It's motor racing and 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 yes some have been attracted uh, you know by 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 the show, um, by the Netflix show, but just so long as people love what they see and love motorsport, I think that helps all of us. And a lot of people are going to decide, I'd like to see something like this, but I don't have $1,000 for a ticket, or I'm a company that wants to be involved as a sponsor, but I don't have $25 million. Maybe IndyCar or IMSA or something is for you, and I've always said, too, you've got a better chance of, of finding an IndyCar fan from another form of motorsport than necessarily, say, from basketball or football uh, because they're in, inclined to like motorsport. Tell me about the IndyCar contingent that was there. Who did you see? Saw Alex Pillow. Saw Alex Pillow not too long after he got out of the car and had a smile from ear to ear. Uh, saw Pato Award. Saw the this year's Indy 500 winner, Marcus Erickson. Marcus was really enjoying himself by, you know, being back. With, he was there with Sauber, you know, his old team, Alfa Romeo slash Salba, uh, his old team. So I got to see a lot of his old friends in the paddock. Uh, Pato Award was doing some of the the, the, the ride and drives experience. Um, so he was having a blast. And, and for, for Alex to do uh, free practice one for McLaren was was huge. Um, Jay Fry, the president of IndyCar, was there. He was enjoying himself. He had a fun weekend. Um, and there was probably a whole lot of others I, I just didn't see, but they were the ones, the immediate ones that I bumped into. And um, again, it was terrific weather and it was just, you know, it was a celebration of motorsport. And we got to see an American in free practice one along with Alex Pillow uh, for the first time since Alexander Rossi, I believe. Logan Sargent, you've been following his career since he came up. He is very likely going to be in a Williams car full-time next year. Tell me about the young Floridian. He is a fantastic young man. He is super talented. Um, talking to the Williams folks, they were so uh, just excited about, they are excited about the prospect of, of him, you know, being in a Formula One car. We now know Nicholas Latifi, the Canadian, is not returning. So there is an open seat there and there's a lot of talk about Mick Schumacher being in there. But I think, you know, um, Yost Capito, the, the CEO and team principal, I think he all but said, you know, over yeah. the past weekend and the past yeah. few days that Logan Sargent will be a Williams Formula One driver. There has to be some boxes checked and what they did, uh, they saw how he did in free practice one uh, on, on the Friday of the US Grand Prix weekend and then immediately made the decision and announced it the next day that he would do free practice one in Mexico this coming weekend because that helps him with his super license points scenario. So instead of having to finish, I think it was top five or top seven in the final F2 race of the year in Abu Dhabi, all he needs to do now after he completes FP1 in Mexico is finish. Okay. And that's another, as we said, box checked and I think so long as all of that goes to plan, I think we're going to have an American in Formula One next year. 
Lee Diffie is joining us. Let's talk IndyCar now. I went back and looked at the end of the season because our vice president of, maybe he's been promoted, uh, statistical analysis, Russ Thompson, <laughs> gets us on paper with our predictions at the beginning of the year, and it did not go well for many of us. But there was one that picked Will Power, not just talking on-air people, I'm talking of the 25 or so people uh, that are involved in production. One picked Will Power, it was Lee Diffie. Well done. Hey. How did you see that coming? Better be lucky than good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I did see a change in him before the season. Um, he alluded to it at the championship ceremony, right, when he said, you know, my wife said, you know, you, that if you do this, you can go out and you can win another Indy 500 and you can be another uh, another a two-time IndyCar champion. So, look, I think we, we, we poke around in the dark, don't we, as far as trying to pick a winner at the beginning of the season. But I did see a noticeable change in him, and I think it's probably a bit unfair to say that at 41 or what it will is now that he's maturing but i think he is i think he is maturing and he and he and he, he's a very for those who who don't know he's a very uh, voracious reader he loves reading books of all kinds of things and i just think that something has clicked something did click uh, with him and he found a new way a new path forward I mean it's probably not too often that you say a guy who finishes 15th at the Indianapolis 500 goes on to win the IndyCar championship when there's double know, points when yes. there's double points yeah. on the line and you know so that just shows how he kept his emotions in check and just kept believing even at Road America when he got uh, you know semi taken out by Devlin DeFrancesco he got wild for a moment but then calmed down and they spoke afterwards the, I think the old willpower would have kept that feud going. Um, there were just there was numerous things that that was evident with him this year that um, I think he truly deserves the championship. We got hey we got spoiled again on the broadcast side of things and as IndyCar fans we got spoiled by seeing it go down to the wire again for the 17th consecutive year, which is just incredible. Um, but I, I just think that we've got. We had such a terrific story, uh, stories, plural, to enjoy from this year's championship that'll carry us through the off-season and, and into the new year. Just a couple of thoughts as we look ahead to next season. I think it's going to be fascinating. We look at the dynamics of uh, three drivers now at Errol McLaren SP. You've still got at least three championship contenders at Ganassi. You've got all three at Penske. And then you've got the Andretti group. That might be the most fascinating, where they've always had Indy 500 winners. They've had multiple drivers contending for the championship. They now have one driver that's ever won a race. You know, Grosjean's a veteran, but he's not won an IndyCar race. Correct. He's not won any kind of race in over a decade. How is that going to play out? Well, I think I think the engineering team and, and you know, from Michael down, they're going to have to, you know, rally the troops, so to speak. I do think there's, I do think there's quite a bit of pressure on Kyle Kirkwood because... Um, you know, he came in. To, I think you know, going back to that to that uh, competition, the, the the tipping competition that you were talking about, our predictions of the season. I think the majority of us picked Kyle Kirkwood to be Rookie of the Year. I got Lungard. You got Lungard. I, I was well the done. only one of the on-air <laughs> staff that had Lungard winning. It. Well done, Kevin. Well done. Um, but you know, most of us, I think, picked Kyle Kirkwood, sure. and uh, it did not come to fruition. It, and it did not come to fruition, you know, quite spectacularly because he was outperformed by by Christian Lungard. Um, 
And all the rookies. And, and all the rookies. Yeah. And, I, and I was just thinking, to be fair to him, there were flashes of brilliance. Yes. But it wasn't the season we were hoping. Okay, so now you go to an Andretti car and there shouldn't be any excuses, right? So we'll see what, what he does. We've seen what he's done in the junior formulae and we've seen what... Uh, what Kyle Kirkwood has done in an IMSA WeatherTech sports car championship car. He's very talented. But now this is his day job and, and now it's time to deliver. So he's a tough, tough young nut, as we know. Um, so we'll, we'll see what he can do. But I think that carries a bit of pressure with it as well because both Colton Herter and Pato Award, if you look back to guy, young guys who came out of Indy Lights, what did they do? They delivered pretty quickly. Pretty spectacularly. You know, you think about when Colton won at Circuit of the Americas in his first full year. You know, they did they did that last race in the season before he and Pato Award. Pato showed blistering pace. And I think, you know, Kyle needs to remember the, the, the few times that he had some flashes of brilliance this year and build on those and, and go for it. And, you know, if he gets off to a solid start, I think could be a good year from him. But it'll be a funny feeling at Andretti not to have some champions or Indy 500 winners in the field. Yeah, Kyle, is. it's going to be a transition, and there could be growing pains adjusting to the new program, being asked to help lead the program. It might be a struggle, but I also will not be surprised if Kyle Kirkwood wins a race and is yeah. top five, six, seven, eight in the championship, yeah. which in this era is still really good because there's always a dozen that feel like, yeah, I should be in the top five or six. So it's going to be great stuff as we get into it. It won't be long before uh, we see the, the, the spring training near Palm Springs at Thermal in uh, early February next year and they get going again at St. Pete. All right, thanks, Tiff. We'll be watching rugby and much more, and then we'll get set for the Rolex 24 after the new year. Awesome. We'll be racing before we know it. All right. Stay with us. We've got plenty more to come. Nathan Brown of the Indianapolis Star in a little bit too. Trackside 93.5107.5 The Fan. Hi. This is Mark Zerickson and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Okay, let's do some uh, Twitter questions here in this segment before Kurt and Nathan Brown chat in just a few minutes from Brian at 500 Indy 1911. What are the odds? We are bumping in May. My guess is slim to none is what Brian says. So I, I won't go that far. I think like Kurt and I talked about last week, if you'd have asked me a month ago, that would have been my answer, slim to none. As we kind of looked at it last week, I'm going to tell you, like they say, I'm going to tell you there's a chance. Is it a great chance? Maybe not, but I see a much easier path, and I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but we did that either last week or the week before. I see a likelihood of 34 and a possibility of 35 legit entries. And while I've never been a huge fan of... uh, of a 34th, if it's someone that really just doesn't have a chance, if it's, hey, we know these are the 33 and it's going to take a miracle for the 34th to, to get in. Yes, it's a nice feel-good story, but it's just uncomfortable. Uh, it's maybe better than nothing, but in that case, I think 33 is fine. But I do see a scenario where there are 34 maybe even 35 proper entries, and that'd be interesting. That'd be really interesting because somebody good would be going home, and that's not 
great for them, but it's good from an entertainment standpoint that we wouldn't be able to predict ahead of time who is the one that's going to get bumped, and that be a scenario like I think we had just a couple of years ago. So I think there is a possibility of that happening, and I still stand with by Christmas we might have all 34 set. I don't I don't know exactly where they're at. Uh, and when the extra last couple are going to get confirmed and announced. But from the fact that we've seen Marco Andretti already announced, people are just at the point of, hey, let's get this done. Won't shock me to see a Canon announcement sometime soon. Sounds like enough people know about that, that that might be finalized here in the next little bits. Question from uh, also Brian asked, with the Gainbridge Herta announcement today that goes through 27, would that line up with the Herta Andretti multi-year announcement recently? So I don't totally get that one. Maybe he's talking about the report recently. So the announcement was today. I think Marshall Pruitt at Racer.com reported a couple, three weeks ago that Colton had agreed to an extension, a multi-year extension to say with the team, but that was not officially announced uh, until today. So yeah, that's all the same kind of thing. And I haven't really read into all the details of that. So saying he's there through 27, as we know, does not guarantee that he's there. There are possibly outs. Is there an out for Formula One? If there is, my guess would be Michael Andretti would have a right of first refusal or some sort of restriction that if, okay, maybe I'm going to allow you to go to Formula One if that opportunity is there, but I reserve the right if my Formula One team gets off the ground, if I partner with someone, you're my driver if I choose over in Formula One. It's also possible. It's just an ironclad, nope, uh, it's going to take a buyout for you to get out of this deal. So that that kind of information is never shared, but it, it certainly does seem likely that he's going to be with them in some capacity for another four years, and, and that's great. Stuart Bradley asks at Stuart Bradley 15, what does this mean for his F1 chances? Again, go back to what I just talked about. Uh, I don't think it definitively tells us anything because there could be an out for another team and I have to believe that he's still the plan if Andretti is able to get a team together and I believe I read last weekend Michael told someone we're still on pace to be able to get something done Uh, Okay, so that's all we have time for in this segment because Nathan Brown is standing by to chat with Kurt coming up in just a little bit. We've got a little bit on uh, what we learned from the Junior Formula Series that tested at IMS before the end of the program and more all coming up. Trackside, 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Hi, this is Colton Herta, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Welcome back to Trackside, Kurt Cavan, along with Kevin Lee. Kevin's going to sit this segment out, and I am going to have a little chat with Nathan Brown, Indianapolis star, who's done a nice job. Really, you know, had a great, you had a great 2022, a lot of things that uh, took your attention, Alex Pillow being a big one. Uh, but you've had some some really good stuff here, even especially in the last week. And I want to start, I guess, by saying – are you feeling comfortable in your role now? Do you? I mean, I think this is season three. Was this season three or two? It was season three, um, season two in person. I my first one was, of course, the um, pandemic plagued uh, twenty twenty season. So um, it 
actually really surprised me. Um, I just came up on my three year anniversary being at the star. Um, obviously just finished my third season. It seems, uh, surprising that it's already been that long. I do feel like I'm pretty comfortable in everything and have really been enjoying this beat. Um, as you mentioned, this last year was pretty wild and, um, got a chance to, uh, have my first big experience covering a court case and, you know, digging through public records that you don't maybe always anticipate on the motorsports beat, but it was a fun one. Um, and certainly hasn't really felt like, uh, too much of an off season this past month with news popping up just about every single day. Uh, and it has been a, a fun way to, to stay busy here, even in the fall and soon winter months. Just think if, uh, if you follow my path, uh, through its duration, uh, you've only got 27 more years of covering this. So <laughs> think about right. where your, where your family will be 27 years from now and, and, uh, your own life. So yeah, you got a lot to look forward to. That's my dad. It's right about my dad's age, which is just wild to think about, but, um, don't have any plans to go anywhere. Really have been enjoying this beat, um, and being able to do it for the star and hope to have several more seasons of that here in front of me. You had a really, uh, Nathan Brown joins us. You had a really interesting, uh, deep dive into the Nashville situation, Nashville building a announcing it's going to be building a $2 million uh, dome stadium for the NFL team that's going to begin after the 2023 IndyCar race. Uh, let's just take an overview of this. It's going to take a lot of the paddock area. Uh, it's going to really kind of mess with the configuration that was used for the street race at the Music City Grand Prix. They talked about some options, maybe running them around Vanderbilt. Kind of just what's been your takeaway from that conversation and, and how difficult and challenging this is going to be for IndyCar to, to hold a race that's pretty popular in, in its two years? I think the thing that stands out to me is that there has to be commitment from both sides um, that they're in this for the long haul. I, I remember detailing back in the um, ahead of Nashville's first race back in 2021 about the trend lately of street races falling off of uh indycar's calendar over the last decade whether it was um you know coming on and then just not lasting long or just kind of you know drifting away and um the thing that i think about as we you know get closer to this um stadium rebuild that as you mentioned is going to just make an absolute mess and, and make this race in this paddock area look very different for 2024 and 2025. Um, I just think there has to be a, a commitment from IndyCar to say, you know, we know this is probably not um, going to maybe be as strong uh, or maybe even as popular an event in 2024 and 2025 while this construction process is going on, but we're dedicated to, um, you know, seeing this out and getting to, you know, 26 and 27, at least to see what this can be, um, for both the series and the, the promoters moving forward, Jason Rittenberry, the, um, COO of the race who I talked to for this story did feel like there were a lot of positives that could come, uh, from this new construction project project once it's done. Um, 
but it's going to create a lot of growing pains, as you mentioned in 24 and, and 25, and certainly be a, even a storyline as we get to next year's race, even though they don't anticipate any direct effects in uh, August of next year. So he raised the issue of, or the possibility of racing on another circuit down by Van- Vanderbilt university, which is just South of town. I mean, it's not easy to create a new venue um, I mean, we know that from past experience. How likely does that sound that they might race down there? And by the way, that's a pretty congested area. That's that's a lot of, and I say congested, a lot of street traffic, a lot of businesses. It's not so much like the current facility or the current layout, which is pretty much not business-based. Uh, I mean, it's got a stadium, football stadium, but it's not you know, downtown in a community, the way the Vanderbilt layout would likely need to be. What do you make of that? Yeah. So that was actually something that I brought up and asked Jason about. Um, I just, and the reason I brought it up, you know, I just wondered if they felt like they wanted to in some way keep that um, aspect of running around a stadium. And if this construction progress was just project was just too much of a headache and there say wasn't, ample paddock space and wasn't an area for a fan zone and the city wasn't willing to hand over some more downtown centric streets to, um, you know, build back up this race on say the other side of the bridge. Um, I wondered if that was an option. It didn't seem like something that they had thought too much about to be completely honest. I mean, they really do seem like they're pretty prepared um, to find whatever space they can on the east side of the river there, the Columbia or the, yeah, the Cumberland River um, to, you know, use both the, the east and the west side to keep that bridge intact. Um, I think it sounds like they will hopefully find some more space, probably right around where those turns four, five, six, seven, um, are of the track, maybe expand their footprint a little bit deeper into that part and find some, as you mentioned, some, you know, non-commercial roadway around the stadium that's not affected or impacted by the construction. The thing that I had the most trouble trying to envision is how they'll be able to, and where they'll be able to place the paddock, um, knowing that the two years that I've been at this track, um, they do obviously have a lot of parking spaces, but, um, when you're talking about taking up as much space as they are to rebuild this new stadium, um, it's just hard to envision where the paddock and where the fan zone could potentially still be, um, knowing how much parking the, you know, the TV production and all of the folks that, you know, park their trucks to help build the grandstands and then tear them down immediately after the race is over with take up. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of empty space as it is. And, um, they're going to be eating up a pretty large chunk of that. I was surprised they didn't rule out something that Kevin and I talked about several weeks ago, and and that would be a possible return to Nashville Super Speedway, which is about 30 minutes east of the downtown IndyCar race there, seven or eight times in the early 2000s. Uh, Scott Dixon won the last three. Is that in play, do you think? How realistic is that? When I brought that up, Jason, the way Jason reacted, it sounded like it, it's probably a, a last resort type of option. 
but something that they have discussed. Um, and he made a point to say, and in, in which I wrote in that story that, you know, they will sooner run the race at Nashville super speedway than, um, potentially run the risk of either putting on a terrible event or losing this event for two years all together. Um, so I think it's, you know, it, there is a chance. Do I think it is a large one? No, I think they're, they're going to wait, find a way to piece things together and make this work on the streets of Nashville. But it, um, isn't hard to imagine that it's not maybe going to feel or look like the same event that we've had the last couple of years. So I guess it, it would fair to say in this case that they'll cross that bridge if, <laughs> if they need to, uh, Nathan Brown joins us, uh, from indystar.com and you can read that Nashville story on the site. We also had today Colton Herta finally being confirmed by Andretti Autosport and, as uh, staying in the 26 car with Gainbridge sponsorship. I was surprised that through the 2027 season, that's a pretty far extension. Uh, but, but what do you make? I know you talked to, to Colton recently. What do you make about his, uh, about his situation moving forward? I was very surprised um, when I learned how long, that this uh, contract extension is going to go through. So it's a four-year extension. He's there for the next five years because his current two-year deal um, went through 2022 and 2023. Though the, um, you know, the Penske IndyCar contracts are typically under lock and key. We don't exactly know how long those are. Um, a lot of folks around the paddock believe that this is the longest deal currently on the books in IndyCar. Um, I think it, what, what stands out to me is certainly the, the faith that Colton has to have in this IndyCar team. He's um, been around the team for Alexander Rossi's entire last three years of his new deal as he's seen him finish ninth or 10th each of those years and go from being someone that we thought was a title contender into oftentimes an afterthought um, uh, this is certainly Colton believing in his own talent, but also believing that Andretti Autosport can put a car and a crew and a team around him that is potential um, potential championship winning material, which is something that we haven't seen really from this team since um, Rossi's runs uh, to second and third in 2018 and 2019. Um, I also feel like, Maybe some of this, uh, though Colton didn't touch on it too much when I talked to him, maybe some of this uh, comes with the belief or at least just the hope that Andretti Global might eventually get off the ground in some way, shape, or form. And so whenever that might happen, he'll be with and around the team uh, to be prepared to shift over into an F1 seat if Michael's ever able to acquire two of them. Uh, not to say that if he say left for Ganassi or McLaren or Penske after this next year that, you know, Michael wouldn't want to put him in a, in a ride like that. If he was ever able to get a formula one team with Colton being the talent is that he is. And uh, more importantly, uh, an American talent as this sport continues to expand into the U S but I imagine being with Andretti Autosport through 27 and showing this level of faith in the team has to help that in some way. Don't you think uh, this kind of speaks more to a year-to-year deal relative to the NTT IndyCar series, though? Uh, because at any point, maybe 24, maybe 25, that if if the Formula One 
team becomes a reality, then this is no longer an IndyCar deal. It's still a deal with Andretti Autosport. Or do you see it as a five-year commitment to Michael Andretti regardless? Yeah. I mean, I have to imagine unless, you know, say unless, uh, you know, an AlphaTauri or another F1 team comes sniffing around and, and offer offers Colton an F1 deal um, that Michael feels like he doesn't want to stand in the way of, like it sounded like they were, um, you know, feeling and, and talking about when uh, Colton had a potential F1 deal with, with AlphaTauri, had he been able to get the super license points on the table. Um, I, I mean, I have to imagine this just means that Colton, um, barring a situation like that, would be in some sort of Andretti car uh, for the next five years, as you mentioned, whether it's a Formula One opportunity or an IndyCar opportunity, who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, pretty pretty eye-popping number. I mean, I, I asked him, you know, what do you think about when you hear 2027? Um, he said, you know what, that sounds like incredibly far off, uh, but it's also really comforting at the same time because he feels like he doesn't have to talk about or think about or negotiate through any contracts for the time being as um, at least when it comes to IndyCar and can really just focus on building some stability and uh, some, some consistency with this IndyCar team for the long term. Nathan Brown joins us. Let's talk about a couple other teams. One um, semi-related, I suppose, Sarah McLaren SP, which we've kind of talked around a little bit because Colton is apparently not going to be driving one of the Formula One cars. Uh, what do you make of the organizational structure now stateside with that race team? It seems like it's Gavin Ward's operation to lead. I've not seen that really in writing. I've not seen a flow chart, an organizational chart, but it seems like Gavin is, is the new Taylor Kyle. That's in some ways the gist that I've gotten. I'm still working to try to understand that a little bit myself. Um, I am kind of early in the process of working on a, a piece just about the, um, the, the changes from maybe a big picture perspective in the last couple of years of the, the transformation of um, Air McLaren SP as it's come under McLaren control. I know Zach, when we talked to him on a Zoom a couple of weeks back, he made a point to say that he didn't feel like Gavin was directly replacing Taylor and wasn't, say, taking on all of his roles. I get the sense that um, Gavin is really... I mean, truly focused on just the on-track duties. And so in lots of ways, I've taken it as Brian Barnhart um, is managing a lot of the off-track stuff that Taylor would have had in his job title as president of the team. And and Gavin's truly focused on the on-track things. And when you look at what Taylor's responsibilities were and what Gavin and Brian are now in charge of, I imagine... um, there's not much, uh, you know, left that would have been on Taylor's plate that one of those two is now not taking up, but it is a very interesting way of, of going about things. I, you kind of get the sense of, you know, this team as a whole, there's not, um, you know, maybe one person in charge that's based in the indie area because there is so much going on off the track when you're thinking about, Um, you know, this team potentially expanding to, uh, you know, four cars full time, or at least running a fourth uh, Indy 500 
car. Um, when they're, you're talking about expanding, uh, their shop and building this new facility in Whitestown, that's going to be a, a pretty massive undertaking. Um, I, I do get the sense. I feel like Zach Brown is going to be maybe a bit more hands-on than he has been in the past. Um, maybe both in the near and the long term. but, uh, very interested to see both how this team functions and how all of these changes affect their performance on track as we get into 2023 and beyond. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. Let me ask you, uh, relative to uh, the three NASCAR drivers, Kevin and I debated this in segment one tonight. You can get that podcast here in, in a while. But uh, let's think about Jimmy Johnson, Kyle Busch, and Kyle Larson and the odds of those, any one of those three running the Indy 500 in 2023, there aren't a lot of options. Would you say it's most likely that none of them make it? One of them makes it two or three? How would you rank your, your odds and not necessarily which drivers, but zero, one, two, or three drivers in that pool in the Indy 500 in 2023? I'm talking to Jimmy a couple times, even though I, I know, you know nothing's locked in. It seems like, you know, maybe there's a chance that something doesn't come through. I just, I have a hard time imagining that he doesn't find some sort of opportunity to return for the 500. So I'll say, I do think, I, I think that's the most likely option. Um, you know, so I think there's, at, I think there's very likely to be one, but I also don't see, as you mentioned, a whole lot of options for, um, either of the Kyles to come over and make this a reality. So I'd say, you know, if I had to rank, say, zero, one, two, or three, I'd probably say I think one is the most likely, um, maybe two and then zero and then three um, being the least likely. Do you think if it comes down to it, it, it I guess it probably has to be that if, if Jimmy isn't a chip, the options for these three drivers – are Ed Carpenter racing or Dry and Reinbold racing? Anybody else? That seems that that checks out with what I've heard. Um, and you know, I know Ed's been talked about a lot. I still, I, I'm hoping to catch up with him sometime later this week. But you know, I haven't still gotten the sense that his program with Pareto Autosport has fallen through in any way. Um, so that would, you know, if if you're talking about running, say, Simona because I have to imagine, you know, something with Beth and Pareto Autosport, you know, I'm sure they would really want to make sure that they're not um, missing the 500 for a second year. So if you're thinking about Simona being there, you have to think Ed's coming back. You've got Renus and Connor, that's already four cars. And I, I imagine that's, um, that would be quite the undertaking in itself for Ed to take on. So unless say Beth is willing to forego, um, running the 500 again to fill out even more of a road and street course program with Ed, if things do continue to move in the right direction with them. Um, I still really struggle to think of one of those NASCAR guys ending up with Ed. I know um, in a piece that I think is going to be online here soon, Jimmy told me that Ed was one of the teams that he talked to way back um, when it originally seemed like he was more likely to say, make his IndyCar debut with Aaron McLaren SP and also talked with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan racing among, um, Ganassi and McLaren. Um, but 
yeah, Dryer and Reinbolt seems like an interesting place. We don't know if Sage is going to be coming back there. We know that particularly last year and really even the year before, they've rolled out some really competitive cars and it would be really interesting to see um, what uh, a big name and, and a big talent, not that you know, Sage or Santino who ran there a year ago aren't you know really strong talents, and, uh, but it would, just would be interesting to see what maybe a little bit more high-profile team with potentially some bigger sponsors and some more money might be able to do there. Nathan Brown of Indy Start uh, joins us. You you mentioned Santino and that brings us to Foyt. You wrote a nice piece that's still on IndyStar.com. What optimism do you have? That's a kind of a wholesale change for the Foyt team in, in 23. Uh, I think Santino is going to be um, an interesting watch for sure, especially on the ovals. What do you make of that team? I think no matter how next year goes, I think they just need to keep these two drivers intact for a while. Um, I don't don't think that there's any question that um, Benjamin Pedersen is going to be around for a while with his family's relationship with Foyt moving forward. But um, as long as the money is there that can keep Santino in that seat, I just think that that team needs some stability and something to build on. Um, Because I imagine you know, it's tough when you're say an engineer or a crew person and you're either a longtime person that's been with Foyt and you don't know what driver you're going to be working with year in, year out, or you're someone who's potentially on the market and you're trying to decide, you know, do I want to go work for AJ Foyt racing that, um, is changing its driver lineup seemingly every single year or go somewhere else where I know who I'm going to be working with for at least a couple of years. And so I think if they can just begin to build some consistency, even if they're not very strong next year. Um, I think you could start to see this team at least, you know, flirt more often with some more consistent top 15s, um, you know, maybe a top 10 occasionally. Um, I think it's a long, long ways to go before we're talking about them uh, finishing on podiums or even winning races. But I do think if they can just, uh, you know, be able to find the financial backing and the drivers who are willing to stay with them for several years to work on this um, with the talent. I do think that those two drivers have, I think they could maybe finally have something there, but again, I, I think it's going to take, you know, two or three years down the road before we can really see that in earnest. What do you make of Tony Stewart running the dragster this weekend? That's that seems uh, right up his alley and yet going to be a really fascinating watch. So I just finished up talking to Tony and the thing that struck me the most was, um, you know, he starts rattling off the the names and ages of a lot of folks that are racing and, you know, the, the top levels of the NHRA series. And, you know, he sounded like a guy who believes he's going to fall in love with this and could maybe find something that he's willing to run for the next 10, 15 years. Um, you know, he talked about sprint car racing beginning to be even more of a, a young man's, you know, a, a young driver's sport. And I think he really wants to find something that he can do for a while longer in his career. And, uh, this very well, maybe it, I mean, the, the thing, um, that I you know, was surprised about not maybe covering or being as involved in um, NHRA coverage is just the the number of runs that he has under his belt. It's only like six or something like that um, over his couple days that he's had in the car, just because of what it takes to put um, a car like this on the track, just to make a single run down the drag strip. So he feels like he's about as 
unprepared as anything that he's attempted to make a debut in his career, but he sounds very excited. I don't think this is just a publicity stunt. Um, I think this is something that we might see Tony doing um, for quite some time now. Boy, I think, I think you may have hit on something because I hadn't really gone to that level that he would do this for, for a more full-time commitment. I kind of saw this as a, I'd like to try this once or twice and, and just see if, if it's interesting, I mean, kind of fits his attention span at times. He's, and I've known him a long, long, long time. And it's, uh, he's a funny guy and he, he will try anything. And yeah, you just, you've sparked something in me to think about that more because I think it's, it's true. He could run this for another 10 years if, uh, if he found himself to be capable and they had the budget and, and so forth. So interesting stuff. He's uh, he's an interesting character. Anything else you you're working on, or you just like your curiosity just has the has the best of you to you'd like to get answered before the holidays get here? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned that piece on um, a bit of a deep dive at McLaren. I'm also really hoping to dig a little bit this off season, um, just kind of about a big picture look at what's next in IndyCar. I know it seems like um, now that we've gotten clear of the pandemic and now that Penske Entertainment Corp and Roger Penske and the executives and, and folks around him, whether it be Mark Miles or Bud Denker, now that they've got time um, to really just focus on this series' future and not just trying to get through everything that we know the pandemic was, um, really want to to dig into a little bit about what the the focus focus and the vision is for this series i know it's um involves lots of things whether it be um you know tv contracts or digital footprints or you know the new car or the number of races on the schedule things like that but i i think that's something that i'm you know maybe not don't doubt, but just kind of, I'm, I'm really curious to know what the vision is for the next, say, five years of this sport. Um, I think there's a lot of potential and they have a lot of momentum. The, the on-track product certainly, I, I don't think has ever been better, but I, I think they do need to tap into some of that and see where that can take them. Um, I know Roger really loves this sport and wants to see it grow and wants to see it prosper, but um, interested to dig a little bit more into what they want that to be and look like and, and how they would like to get there. So um, hopefully here in a, in a couple months while I sprinkle in some downtime as well, we can have um, a little bit clearer picture on, on that certainly before we get to the 2023 season. Nathan's good to, good to hear from you and good to uh, see you. And it's been a little bit of time in the off season here, but we'll be at uh, we'll be in Southern California pretty soon with a season your your fourth season and 26 more to go for Nathan Brown at the Indy Star. It's wild. Uh, <laughs> Palm Springs was actually my first job right out of college, covered high school sports in the Palm Springs area at the Desert Sun. Um, it's a very small Gannett newspaper in uh, Southern California. So it's going to be very weird and, and really actually pretty cool to be heading back that way uh, to cover the IndyCar series, something I never, certainly never imagined then. And, um, you know, probably didn't even imagine uh, a couple months ago, but really interested to see how this uh, spring preseason uh, run and test at the Thermal Club goes and will be really cool to, um, you know, get back to my old stomping grounds uh, a little bit in a, a very different role. Was the Thermal Club there when you were there? 
I believe so. Um, I don't ever remember writing about it or covering it, so I don't know exactly how old it is. That was back in um, early 2015 where I started there, spent about three years there. Um, so uh, I know it sounds like it's been something that's been gaining a little bit of momentum and popularity around there, but um, certainly not ever something that was too much on my radar while I was out there. I'm sure not. All right, Nathan, uh, thanks a lot. Kevin will be back in just a minute. 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hi, this is Felix Rosenquist, and you're listening to Trackside. Thank you for staying with us as we roll on through the offseason. The great thing is, hey, there's still a lot of news to talk about. The news ferry continues to deliver, and while it's still going to be a little while before you see IndyCar racing, they're still racing to talk about. Uh, you know, you have NASCAR and Formula One to follow, and we've got future hopeful IndyCar drivers that are very much involved. You know, it's, it's, it's so unique when you think about it. So an IndyCar driver has to decide what team he's going to drive for uh, next year, having never stepped in their car in most cases. Back in the day, maybe there was a shootout or maybe there was a test, but generally speaking, and this applies to Formula One and it applies to NASCAR and many forms of motorsport, a driver has to make that decision hoping that it works out. And it would seem in a spec series uh, quote spec series that it does, but that's not always the case. Case in point, Felix Rosenquist could not adapt to the Aero McLaren SP car in year one nearly as well as he did the Ganassi car. Last year, Jack Harvey couldn't drive the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan car nearly as well as he was able to drive the Meyer Shank racing car with Andretti Technologies. So uh, that is challenging and is it more of a gamble? So this leads me into talking about what was going on at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway last week, the test for uh, future, future IndyCar hopefuls. Uh, I don't really have a name for it. It's the USF Pro Championship Combine, uh, and and I would like to say it's part of the the road to Indy, but that's um, well, that's no longer the name of the what we knew as the road to Indy. I'm hoping there's a, a new label coming from it, and we've got more details to come. But there's been a rebranding of what was the road to Indy. USF 2000 stays as it is. Indy is not involved anymore. The name Indy uh, at that level, it's the USF Pro 2000 Championship. That's what was Indy Pro 2000. And as Mark Miles said at the end of the season banquet, and I've heard it many, many other places as well, so this isn't spilling secrets, sure seems like Indy Lights is going to be rebranded in the next little while. I think Indy is still going to be a part of that title, but also... In full disclosure, part of the complication would seem to be that, and I, I get why they're, it's not as simple as just to call the whole thing the road to Indy anymore, because Firestone is the tire supplier for Indy Lights, and Cooper Tires still supplies the levels below that that generally race with IndyCar, so it's not seamless. But getting to the point, oh, I don't know what to call it, <laughs> so we're working on that, and hopefully somebody smart comes up with an easy branding to help market that series and explain what we're doing. So we'll call it the IndyCar Ladder Report at this point. And, and getting back to what I was talking about, where this leads, is these young drivers don't have to commit to their team for the next season. So many young drivers, especially if you have unlimited budget, 
they'll go through and they'll test with four different teams and see which car they like the best, evaluate all the programs, which people they like the best, uh, which engineer they like, who might offer a better price. It's essentially customer racing. So all of that goes into play. So some of that was happening this past weekend. In many cases, drivers have already signed Uh, They may not have announced it, but they've already decided. So it's just getting a start on what's going to happen next year. So first we start with Indy Lights on Friday. Now that's kind of a unique test. So there were still, I think, 16 drivers there, still missing some, and some are not certain to be in the series next year. Why I say it's unique because it's not the tire they're going to be racing on next year. The Firestones are not ready yet for Indy Lights and won't be until after the new year. So they were using what they had left of Cooper tires, and they weren't even, I'm told, Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course Cooper tires. It's a little bit of a different spec or compound or something. It was the Road America tire, and if you were kind of following along on Friday morning, it was chilly in the morning. Not that cold, but everybody sat until... Boy, I think it was 10.30, almost 11 o'clock, because those that went out were spinning uh, because the Road America tire, long straightaways, you're worried about overheating. It's not really the case at Indianapolis. So these tires were, it was a it was a struggle to get them up to temp. So everybody had to sit for a little while. And then it was really busy uh, in the afternoon. And when we talk about missing some, Jacob Abel from Abel Motorsports wasn't there. He's since been confirmed. And I get why Jacob wasn't testing because it's not the tire for next year. He's not new to Indy Lights. So yes, it always helps to test, but everybody's got a budget and it's expensive to test. So they put a couple of other young drivers in their car uh, to give them an opportunity. Jack Miller, who's been running an Indy Pro 2000, did well in his first day in an Indy Lights car. And Nikki Hayes, who was my son Jackson's teammate in USF 2000 this past year, got his first go at an Indy Lights car and had fun and did well. Cape Motorsports was not there. They're moving up to Indy Lights. I think they just received their cars and they're still building them. And again, it's not the tire, so it would be helpful, but it's not critical that you you do this test. As far as speeds last Friday, Daniel Frost, who just did well in an Indy car recently for Dale Coyne, was one of the nine cars with HMD with Dale Coyne racing and was the fastest. So last week on the show, we said, uh, hey, I've been hearing, they've been saying eight cars for HMD. But I think there's nine, and indeed there is nine. Ernie Francis Jr. with Force Indy is going to be running an HMD car. So good for him. That means he's got teammates. Uh, The Force Indy guys did a fantastic job to be competitive for a driver adjusting to the top level of the road to Indy, one step away from IndyCar, and a team without teammates. That's really hard. So now it's going to be, and I'm probably phrasing this improperly, but uh, Rod Reed and Force Indy are going to be more of the marketing arm. They're still very much front and center, but they'll have teammates with HMD. And also Miles Rowe is going to be running a Force Indy branded car for another established team, Pabst Racing in USF Pro 2000. But HMD with their nine cars, they had six of the top seven on Friday at IMS. Hunter McElroy was the fastest non-HMD, second 
for Andretti Autosport and Louis Foster, last year's Indy Pro 2000 champ, was eighth quick for Andretti Autosport. They had James uh, James Rowe Jr. in the car. Uh, he ran for Andretti, and he also ran for them again yesterday at Barber. Jamie Chadwick was running for Andretti, did so yesterday again. She's not been announced yet. I think that's where she's headed with Andretti, but I don't know that with 100% certainty. She had the only incident on Friday, but got back out there later on. It's a little bit of a process for Jamie, so don't totally judge her by these lap times. The car she's been driving is, it's a good car, basically an F3 car, but I think Indy Lights is still a step up. I've not had a chance to talk with her yet, so that's going to be a little bit of a process. Uh, The times I saw and Trackside Online Ladder posted this as well, that hey, the times from Monday at Barber don't mean a lot either because we don't know the life of the tires. Apparently there were no sticker Cooper tires available, so some might have had used tires that had four laps on them. Some might have had used tires that had 25 laps on them, so a different situation. But I did see in some times I saw that she was very close. She was still last, but she's like a half a tenth off of those in front of her, and I think Hunter McElroy was the quickest, but again, don't put a lot of stock in those. That doesn't mean a ton. Going back to the Friday test, uh, I thought Jack Miller did a nice job going 11th in his debut, and you know I'm keen on Nicky Hayes. He's a good kid. Jackson has known him for a while, and he was uh, only nine-tenths off in his first day in an Indy Lights car, which is the same for Jack. Reese Gold was the only driver in the Hunkos car. He's not been announced yet. I suspect that's where he's going. They've still got a seat open there. I think Cape has a seat open. Um, Andrew Ready hasn't confirmed a couple. Abel has a seat open to run an extra car. So we are on pace to, uh, I think, very likely have between 16 to maybe 18 or 19 cars in Indy Lights. So the other uh, series were on track Saturday and Sunday. The USF Pro Championships Combine is what it was called, and that included the official driver of this program, Jackson Lee, uh, in USF Pro 2000. So that's a step higher. So we just kind of wanted to see how would he go. In all honesty, Jackson hasn't been able to finish because of budget. Uh, the first two seasons last year was the victim of a crash late in the season that was quite expensive, but. Uh, We wanted to have an opportunity to see if he was ready to move up. I didn't know what the threshold would be as to what we would say would make us comfortable that he was ready, but safe to say we're very comfortable. He was within three-tenths of the top speed. You know, We might have even said if he's six or seven-tenths or a second, that might have been good enough because I know most of the other drivers have done a lot of fall testing. He had done most of a day. Uh, in the car on used tires without an engineer, without data, just driving, just to get a feel of the car. And the first session, he was off the pace, just trying, not massively, but like a second and a half off the pace, just trying to get comfortable. Second session, big step up. They put stickers on for the first time, and he's within three-tenths, and then he's off and running and comfortable for the rest of the weekend. It was kind of cool to watch timing and scoring change a few times. Late in sessions, as fast as second and third. So that was good. We were happy with how it went for Jackson. Uh, the Miller Vinatieri cars are quick. His teammate, Jack William Miller, 
Uh, he's driving an Indy Pro 2000, or what is now USF Pro 2000 again next year. And he was the fastest. It was really close, though, over the weekend. But Jack was the fastest. Jonathan Brown from turn three was second quick. Yuvan Sundamaworthy, who has moved to exclusive, was third quick. Raul Hyman, who won the FR Americas Championship last year, I think he only did Sunday, and he was fourth quick for TJ Speed. The top 12 were all within four tenths. It's tight. And as I mentioned, Jackson was in that group as well, uh, about three tenths off, off the pace. He said it was a bit worn out, so he'll have to hit the gym a little bit more, and we will see where things take us. Now, Dad gets on the budget hunt and see if we can make it work to move up to the next level. So stay tuned on that. And in USF 2000, Simon Sykes. I'm happy for Simon. I like Simon. He was Jackson's teammate in F1600. He's really good. Same issues as we've had, just trying to find the budget to do a whole season. Uh, he did just the second day and was fastest for Paps by about a couple of tenths. Matt Clark was second quick. He was the U.S. F Juniors Championship with D-Force last year and is running for them this year. And Andre Castro, who was a Team USA scholarship driver last year, was third quick for Future Star Racing. A lot of cars in that series, 26 over the weekend. So there is your, what do we say, IndyCar ladder report for the weekend. We'll see what we missed coming up in just a moment. Trackside, 93.5, The Fan. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. All right, final segment. Uh, full disclosure, tonight's program has been plausibly live because, as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing a little bit of help uh, at the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show, pretending like I'm a producer. So this is you know, when I can't find any work on television on the air. I'll do this and tell people what to do. And we didn't get back to the hotel in time, so we're still at dinner. So that's why there's music here. So uh, I thought it'd be interesting just to go around the table and introduce everyone because some of the people with us you might actually recognize. Hi, your name, what do you do? Hi, my name is Jamie Little. I live in Carmel, Indiana. <laughs> I covered IndyCar, I covered NASCAR, and now I'm covering the boat show along with you, Kevin. Our audience knows Jamie. Jamie, we're actually going to have Jamie on the show as a, a specific guest to talk about the end of the NASCAR season next week, and we'll do a little promotion for the boat show, which airs on November 6th. So we'll have Jamie back on properly on the phone coming up the next next week. Motorsport fans will also know our next guest. Hello. Hello, everybody. Will Christian here. Cover Supercross and Motocross. Um, everyone at the table is teaching me tonight to say y'all. So I'm practicing that. <laughs> I got to know Will when we worked together on Red Bull GRC a few years ago on NBC. And unfortunately, as soon as I came on board, the series died. So I killed that series <laughs> along with some others. So that's that's my bad. But luckily, Will is still employed and a valued employee at NBC. And our final guest at the table tonight is... You don't know him. And his name is Mike Caudill. Wait, who? Mike Caudill? Or is it Will? Or is it Jamie? No, it's Mike Caudill. And I am the resident automotive expert, transportation sure. correspondent. Hey, I cover all kinds of things in the automotive industry, from electrification to technology, and I do it mainly on Fox News. 
Fantastic. And our program will air on FS1. You will not see me, but all of the brilliant things, I'm sure I had something to do with. The bad things, I wasn't involved in. So we'll uh, talk about that more coming up on future programs. That's it for tonight. There were some good Twitter questions. Apologies, I didn't get to all of them. We'll do it next Tuesday night from 7 until 9. For Kurt and for Josh back in the studio, I'm Kevin. Thanks for joining us on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.